Hello, hi there. <laughs> this is helping because for some absurd reason, I'm so nervous today. Like, I like talking, so I don't know why I'd be nervous, you know, to have a whole group of people to talk in front of. But let's get into the word. So, um, last week, Siv started us off uh, with our um, Frequently Asked Question series, answering the question of who am I? This week, Greg and I will be speaking on the question, what to do when you don't know what to do? <laughs> So I will take the first 15 minutes, and then Greg will come and just slam dunk it and take it all the way there with the last 15 minutes. Um, and I'm sure we'd all agree, when it comes to knowing what to do when you feel like you don't know what to do, the one thing that is absolutely important is wisdom. So with this in mind, most of our text is going to come from the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is a book in the Old Testament that was written by King Solomon, who was David's son. When David handed over the kingdom of Israel to him, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, Solomon, you can have everything in the world. Anything that you ask of me, I will give to you. What would you like for me to give to you? And Solomon answered God and he said, Lord, I would ask for wisdom. He could have had anything, but he chose to ask for wisdom. So in this book, Solomon gives us the theme of what the book is about, um, the purpose of the book, and the Message Bible puts it so well, and it says, a manual for living. It calls the book of Proverbs a manual for living. And in verse 7, Solomon says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight already so aware of your presence. You pour your spirit out so generously, withholding nothing. So I pray tonight, Lord, as we seek wisdom, as we seek understanding, as we seek to learn, God, that you will meet us at our place of need. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So before Solomon goes into the book, this is verse seven, mind you, of a 30-odd chapter book. He says, in order for you to have wisdom, you need to begin with a fear of the Lord. This word fear speaks of a reverence, of an awe, of a realizing the otherness of God. He says, in order for you to walk out life with wisdom, the very front door of entering into wisdom is to know who God is and how he is. You need to know who God is and how he is. This is an invitation to all of us. It might not seem like an invitation, right? When you hear the fear of the Lord, it's like, whoa, spooky. 
but it's an invitation for us to put down whatever other idea we have of who God is and to take up a correct perspective of who he says he is. Then we will walk in wisdom. The Message Bible puts it this way. Start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. What Solomon is saying here is if you want wisdom, you need to have a correct perspective of God. And conversely, if you see God correctly, then you will walk in wisdom. And if you see God incorrectly, then you will most likely walk in foolishness. So it's not so much, yes it is, but it's not so much whether it's a yes or no, or it's an up or a down, or a left or right, but it is who is God in this situation, in this moment, in this decision that I'm making. Am I seeing him correctly? Or am I seeing him through whatever lenses I may have on, whether it's because of culture, or upbringing, or experience, or pain, or really real things that we experience? Am I seeing God correctly? Is my perspective accurate? The word, um, the Lord um, in the NIV and God in the message um, is the word translated from Hebrew, Yahweh. This is God's official name. If God had to walk into this room and introduce himself, he would introduce himself as Yahweh. Yahweh speaks of the one who brings into being, the life giver, the giver of existence, the creator, he who brings to pass, and my favorite one, the performer of his promises. Do we see God this way when it comes to the decisions that we need to make? There are two things that we need to settle in our hearts when it comes to God being God. Well, three. One, we're not God. Let's settle that. You are not God. I'm not God. People, whether influential or knowledgeable or able or present or full of love, they are not God. God alone is God. We need to settle that. The second thing we need to settle is his supremacy in all things, right? And when I say all, I mean all, not some things, not only things that pertain to them or her, not only things that pertain to things that I understand or I can hold in my mind, God is supreme in all things. If you are seeking wisdom, start with going to the one who is supreme in all things. And he is generous. God will never withhold wisdom. Never. He will never withhold from you. He gives generously. It's in his nature to give generously. But we need to settle He's supremacy. We need to settle that he is God and we are not. The second thing that we need to settle is where we are going to hook our faith, as it were. 
Now, faith is an inner persuasion, right? It's an inner persuasion of what you believe. So, a quick example. Um, this is a guitar, right? I'm sure we all agree this is a guitar. If I had to tell Kuze, which is my son, maybe if I had to tell him at one, that this was a guitar, he would say, yes, mom, that's a guitar. Not because he knows what a guitar is and he agrees with me, but there's an inner persuasion of who I am as his mother that allows him to walk into the yes, that must be a guitar. We need to have an inner persuasion of who God is. And that when he says he will do what he says he will do, he will do what he says he will do. God is invested in performing his promises. He's invested in that. God is jealous for his name. He's jealous over his name. He wants to show himself strong in our lives. But we need to step back and say, okay, I'm facing this situation right now, and I'm struggling to see you, Lord. Reveal yourself. Reveal who you are when it comes to my finances, when it comes to finding a partner to marry, when it comes to choosing a career, when it comes to anything pertaining to your life. God, who are you? And I'm going to take my faith, my belief, and anchor it not on the outcome of the situation, but on who you are. Proverbs 4.23. And this is the next principle that we're going to glean from um, the book of Proverbs. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. In essence, what Solomon is saying here is, watch over God, be aware, pay attention to your heart. Watch over your heart, be aware of it, know what it's saying, know what its, what its desires are, tune, tune in to your heart. You need to guard it because from it flow all the things pertaining to your life. We need to be rigorous about guarding our hearts, what we allow to flow in and what we allow to flow out. This uh, watch over speaks of being proactive, doing it continuously, being diligent, being intentional, not when a crisis hits, but you need to know your heart, right? You need to know your heart. No one is going to do the work of knowing your heart, one, more than God, and two, more than you. Do the work of knowing your heart. You may be afraid sometimes of what you may find, <laughs> but that's okay. God is not. God is not. He's ready. He would rather you step in proactively to knowing your heart. God, I do not know what to do right now. Step in. Learn your heart. Confront the fears. Speak to the doubts. Suss out what exactly is going on in your heart. The Hebrew word for heart speaks of um, the inner man. 
the mind, the will, the heart, the soul, the comprehending mind and affections. And I would dare to add that the heart is the seat of our desires. It's the seat of our desires. It is the place where our values, the things that we value the most reside. So when it comes to making decisions, I'm going to propose this, that we all have things that we value, right? We all have things that we value. And sometimes the difficulty that we feel in making a decision is because someone has touched us in our studio. Something has interfered with the thing that you value, right? You feel it. Something shifts. Something is, is, is a bit off. And I would dare to say that our thoughts and our emotions are the narrative that we build around the things that we value. The things that you think, the things that you feel are guarding your core values. They're surrounding your core values. They're the things that that keep your core values up. And then the third thing is the will. And what the will does, all of this is happening in your soul. All of this is happening in your heart. What the will is, is the executor of your values and your desires. When you make a decision, when you take your will and you choose X, you are executing your desires. You are living from your values. So like I said, when we are struggling to make decisions, it's because there's a lack of integration there. There's a lack of integration with your core values, your thoughts, your emotions, and your will, right? Something has shown up, whether it's a crisis, whether it's a choice that you need to make that's kind of interfering with how the system, this process works, And I would dare to say that you have two things that will usually come and confront you in that place. One, what you think or what you believe is not in line with your values. That's the first thing. That's the first point where you'll have crisis. And two, when the Holy Spirit comes (laughs) and he convicts you. Those are the two scenarios when we'll find ourselves in a place where we feel like, Lord, what am I going to do? Because I feel like I don't know what to do. Let me give you a quick example. We've all heard it said (laughs) that we should forgive our enemies. Not only forgive, we should love them. If you have been hurt, (laughs) if you have been deeply hurt, when you hear that principle, when you hear God saying, I require of you to forgive. Something in you moves. There's a reasoning. There's a moment. I mean, personally, I've had moments where I'm like, God, do you know what they did? Do you know what they did? Because if you really knew what they did and you really cared about me, you'd never ask me to forgive them. That's because my core value in that moment is my self-preservation. And that's okay. That's okay. Just as long as I know my heart 
and I name it and I speak to my heart. And then I walk into the supremacy of who God is because of who he is and how he is. I can confidently believe that when he says, Marsh, forgive, that that is the best decision to make. So before I hand over to Greg, I want to leave you with these two points. And this is what I've said, and I've said over and over again, and I'm going to say it again with different words. When you don't know what to do, find God and see him for who he is. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Listen to your heart. Find the dissonance. Find the dissonance. And then self-regulate. Greg. Good evening, good evening. Thanks, Marsha. That was awesome. Amen. So just to remind you of Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And there have been many, many studies that have been done around negotiation, that art of persuading somebody to your point of view, and the science of decision-making that have proven time and time and time again that no matter how much we think we are making decisions with our mind, we are actually making decisions with our heart. And what the real process of negotiation and decision-making is about is convincing ourselves that the thing we want is the best thing for us. So there was a neuroscientist called um, Antonio DiMaggio who studied people with damage to the part of the brain where emotions are generated. He found that they seemed normal, um, except that they were not able to feel emotions. They all had something peculiar in common. They couldn't make decisions. They would describe what they should be doing in logical terms, yet they found it very difficult to make even simple decisions, such as what to eat. Many decisions have pros and cons on both sides. Will I have the chicken or the bacon sandwich? Now, Marcia knows because she heard me preach a couple of months ago, I'm definitely having the bacon sandwich, so sorry to the vegans in the room. But what he realized was their rationale for why they wanted chicken as opposed to bacon no longer existed. And so they couldn't make the decision. I like chicken more than bacon. Or I just feel like a chicken sandwich today. That didn't exist. And so what we have to hold, and some of you are disagreeing with me as I'm saying this, is that we cannot ignore our heart. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and this is what Marsh was talking about, values, that we have already pre-decided for ourselves from when we were tiny. There is a way we think about the world, we think about ourselves, and we think about other people that because of our family of origin has become our default setting, and that is values. And Marsh spoke so beautifully about what happens when crisis hits. And crisis isn't the tornado. Crisis is when you think you look ugly, and your value is if I can just look beautiful enough, the world will go right for me. So what do you do that day you feel ugly? As Pastor Saviwe spoke to us last week, where do you go for your affirmation and your attention? Are you running to your boyfriend, to men, to flirtation, to whatever? If you're a man and your value system is that if I can just be strong enough, I will control my life, what do you do to wake up and you're not strong? You see, and this trick with Christians especially is that we become Christians and we go, you're Lord and I love you. 
but we haven't paid any attention to what our actual values are. I am 46 years old. I've been a Christian for 30 years. It is just long. I feel like I know why I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> I can do it, Jess. I can, I can make it to the end. Um, but I have, begun to, I have learned one thing in my life. I'm going to get what I want, not what I say I want. Not what I think other people want me to have. I am actually going to get what I want. Some of you are struggling in this room with habitual sins because you're not getting honest about what you want. So we're Christians. We want Jesus. Of course we do. Of course we want peace. Of course we want to please him. But we're not being honest about the fact that, as Pastor Siv said last time, what is the young lady who was so depressed because she felt like, what is the point of being a Christian if no man's ever going to love me? She just exposed her own value system to herself. That God's love for me is great, but actually until a man loves me, nothing's going to change. And you, you see the power of values. And so we've got to come out of delusion. And we've got to start exploring our hearts. And so some of you are like going, why are you talking so much about hearts and decision making? I think you're getting it. So I had some fun this week. I, I was reading millennial blogs. <laughs> It is weird being a 20-something today. <laughs> and I've got two quotes that they're going to put up on the back. You can read them with me. A 20-something writer on the hashtag life hack section of the Forbes magazine online recently lamented, I feel like I have been pushed out of an airplane with a parachute that has a dozen different uh, pull cords, and I don't know which one will save me or which will kill me, but I do know I have to do something before I hit the ground. That's a good step. <laughs> Hopefully before she hits the ground, she makes the choice. Another 20-something contributed to an article on decision-making in Forbes discussed the idea of career paralysis. I am so scared of making the wrong career choice that I don't make any. And can you see how these two individuals are struggling with the springs, the issues of life that are coming out of their heart? Fear just outright fear. I don't know if I'm going to make the right choice. I'm just not going to do anything. And the other one's kind of FOMO, isn't it? It's also a kind of fear. But, but what if I make, but what if there's a better? What, what, it's a real fear. Okay, okay, let's just call it, for millennials, it's like, oh my word. But can you see how it is emotionally based? So again, from the wonderfully wise book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now can you see that the Bible figured out before science did that we make our decisions in the heart. The heart of man plans his, not the mind, not the 73,000 hours of research you did. It's your heart. And so we make our plans in the heart and so the simple answer to what do I do when I don't know what to do, now Marsha's given us beautiful things already, but the simple answer is just do something. <laughs> do anything, in fact. You see, the word plan in that scripture is the, in the old English is divisive. And it means to think, to regard, to value, to compute, conceive, consider, imagine, and invent. Can we say that together? If you go to the next slide, it's all on there. There we go. Let's say that together. It means, if I can find it again, um, to think, to regard, to value, to compute, conceive, consider, imagine, 
and invent. Can you see that it implies an intentionality? It implies an effort. It requires us doing something. To plan your ways. As I was looking at the scripture, the Lord literally did this to me, Marsha. We had spoken in the week and we were so excited about what we're going to say and we were lamenting that we only have so many minutes because we all want to say everything. And I had this idea of what I was going to preach on. And when I started reading that scripture and meditating and reflecting on it, God took my plans and he ordered my ways. Because what he showed me is that there is a biblical template in this verse of how we make decisions. The first one, and Marsha has done such a great job, is that you know your own heart. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We love that scripture. We've got pads of paper and cups with that scripture on it. We haven't got a clue what it means. (laughs) I'm going to tell you now. (laughs) So the writer of Proverbs, who may very well have been Solomon, he wrote most of them, um, takes it for granted in that scripture around the heart of man plans his ways. He's taking it for granted that you and I have already made a choice that we are delighting ourselves in God. Okay. What delighting means in the English is to take great pleasure, satisfaction, or enjoyment in something. Great pleasure, satisfaction, or enjoyment in something. And the psalm tells us that the object of our delight is God himself. But scripture defines delighting in God this way. Psalm 119 verse 16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119 verse 47 says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written on my heart. It's got very quiet in here. You see, delighting in God isn't God and I are like this. Jesus is just all right with me. It's not getting goosebumps in worship or talking about how awesome the service was. See, these four scriptures put a heavy on us. They tell us that we delight in God when we delight in his statutes, in his commandments, in his law and in his will. And so I want to ask you, when was the last time we took great pleasure, satisfaction, and enjoyment in forgiving somebody? Ouch. When was the last time we took great pleasure, satisfaction, and enjoyment in considering ourselves a little less than we consider others? When was the last time we took great delight, satisfaction, and enjoyment in setting aside our lust and our self-gratification so that we can rather love and honor and respect and promote the well-being of somebody else and not just pandering to what we want from them? See, that's delighting in God. And so we delight in the gifts of God, We delight in the promises of God, but the issue at hand is, are we delighting in Him? 
You see, because only when we delight in him does he give us the desires of our heart. Why? Because when I delight in God, as the scripture has just explained, my heart aligns with his. I swap out my faulty, damaged value system for his eternal value system. See, the only reason God gives us the desires of our heart is because they're his desires. But you and I have to come in alignment. You and I have to make the choice that his value system is valuable, that it matters, that it rules the universe. I want to say this. God created you and I for love, for joy, for life, for adventure. Do you know that I honestly believe with all my heart that God says yes to a million things. I only know 10 things he says no to. God says yes way more often than he says no. And we agree when it comes to murder. Oh, yes, put that sinner in jail. We agree when it comes to stealing. When it comes to covetousness, we want to make up our whole own standard. But she's so gorgeous. She makes me feel all, mm. But when I put those shoes on, I'm around ladies who are always wearing gorgeous shoes, so it's just something I've had to learn to like consider. Like, those are amazing. Um, when I put those shoes on, then I'm gonna be somebody to reckon with. When I buy that car, it's exactly what Pastor Siv spoke to us about last week. Where are we getting our affirmation from? And so we don't get to pick and choose. God has only said no to 10 things, but he says yes to a million. God wants you to dream. He wants you to desire to be amazing and great and do incredible things, not just for yourself, for others, for the world, for his kingdom. He wants that from you. He is not trying to restrict you. But when we truly delight ourselves in him, then our hearts align with his and we can make good decisions. The second part of that scripture is, um, uh, in his heart, a man plans his way. Make a plan. Again, millennials commenting on a blog article had this to say about making a plan. We have the freedom to make our own choices, our own path, yet we can't. You're always told to envision where you'd like your life to go and work backwards from that. The thing is, I don't know what I want my life to be, which makes it difficult to make those decisions. Another one wrote, we have a surplus of choice. The exciting theory is, is that we can go wherever we want and achieve whatever we want to, but it is so overwhelming that it can actually serve to do the opposite of what it should, and that paralyzes us. Dr. Jonathan White, a psychologist and visiting professor at Henley Business School, agrees. You would think that having online capability would make it more and more possible for people to get information and therefore help with decision-making, but it actually exposes them to more possibilities for choice. Something we're going to have to settle in this life is that the practices of denial are just not about saying no to sin, but it's like, it's about saying no to things that are good and wonderful that I might even be good at and enjoy because I know what God wants for me. So, one of the scriptures I love in the Bible is that I can do all things through Christ. It's awesome. What that means is no matter what situation I find myself in, Jesus is enough, and we will figure it out. Some of us take that as license to do everything. 
Pastor Roger always says to us, yes, you can do all things for Christ, but should you? What are you called to? What has God given you? What are the desires in your heart? And there's a million other things you could learn and do that are fun and amazing, but what are you called to? You see, you're only gonna live in your body for, well, your generation might make it to 100 healthily with bits of plastic and whatnot <laughs> all over the place. But, um, <laughs> you know, ours really only hope for like 83. But yours, yours could make it. But that's a limited time, isn't it? But you are meant for eternity. That means there is more in you than you will ever express in those 100 years. So you're going to have to make choices. And the point of making a choice is that purpose is restrictive. Now think about that. All purpose is restrictive. Yeah, yeah, some of you are getting it. Some of you are very upset with me. So what I mean by that is, is if I buy a spatula, I'm a bachelor, so I have to do these things myself, Marsha. If I buy a spatula, do you know what a spatula is? It's that plastic flat thingy that helps you pull the chicken off when it's cooked too long. You know, that kind of thing. So that's, what it, that's the purpose of a spatula. So it's made in such a way that when you stick it on the hot, sticky chicken, you know, you don't burn your fingers and you get it off after a lot of scraping and maybe a little bit of swearing, which I'm not confessing to. But you get it off. Okay. So you all know what a spatula is. But if I take that spatula outside and rake the garden with it, it might work for three minutes, but then I'm going to pervert the spatula because its purpose is to scrape chicken off a hot thing. When I rake the garden with it, I have perverted it, and it destroys the spatula. Then I'm all upset with the spatula and the makers of the spatula, but I'm the idiot who used it to rake the garden. Am I making the point? So this is purpose. What is your purpose? If you're a spatula, guess what? You live in the kitchen and you're around hot, sticky food all the time. If you're a rake, you live in the garden shed and you get to go out in all kinds of weather and scrape up stuff. You are so much more important than either a spatula or a rake. But you have a purpose. And if you're going to fulfill it, that means you're going to have to say no to a bunch of other stuff. Because as good as it is, it might end up perverting you. The English word pervert simply means to use against its purpose. So, we have to make choices. And choices are risky, because what if we make the wrong choice? <laughs> well, then we realize we made the wrong choice and we make a better one. I don't believe there is failure in God's economy. The only failure is never submitting to him and sin. <laughs> Anything that keeps you away from him is failure. But faith is all about trying, and all God requires of you is faith. Abraham heard a voice that said, this, your culture is, well, I don't know what the voice exactly said to him, but I am God, follow me. But the implication is... <laughs> The Bible doesn't actually tell us. Something some, some, like that. Um, but, but he heard a voice that we know, and he looked around him, and he could see by the consciousness of his own heart that a culture that sacrifices its oldest children in the flames of Molech to gain spiritual and political power might not be the most healthy culture to live in. And he took a risk. And for a lot of it, it just looked like failure. My best moment ever 
with God and your sense of humor was when I was standing on top of a, it's this beautiful cerulean blue lake that you cannot drink from because it will kill you if it gets in your eyes or your lug. There is nothing but gray rock as far as you can see. In its own way, it's got a kind of beauty. But if I was Abraham, I would have been like, oh, no. Take me back to Ur now. So I know Abraham must have been something really special to go, wow, yay, yes. <laughs> But it looked like failure for most of his life. But you and I are sitting here because of him. The most successful person in the world. And all he saw legitimately was Isaac and twins, Esau and Jacob. I have been counseling people for the last 17 years of my life. And what that has taught me more than anything is that God changes hearts. I've been blown away again this week by seeing how God changes hearts. And what I have seen is that there is almost nothing in the world you cannot come back from. So stop fearing making a mistake and start trusting in the God who fixes them. Now, there certainly are just choices in our lives that have lifelong consequence. Making Jesus your Lord and Savior is one of them. Well, let's congratulate all the baptism guys today. Yay. That is a lifelong consequence decision. Choosing who you're going to marry it's lifelong, okay? Having children is lifelong. So make sure you do all of those things in righteousness. Because when you mess up one of those things, you might end up being tied to somebody you don't even like for your whole life and that they will be included in every decision you make for the rest of your life because you decided to step out of God's will. You stopped delighting in him. God will help you. God will give you all the grace. Many beautiful people in this church are dealing with that very thing. It's awesome. They're going to be amazing because they're going to submit to God and they're going to do what they need to do. But it's going to be hard. And so when, it, when we don't know what to do, we just need to do something. Michelle Obama gives some really good advice around this. Um, she says, don't ever make decisions... <laughs> Based on fear. Make decisions based on hope and possibility. Make decisions based on what should happen, not what shouldn't. And the law, yeah, I don't know where she is with Jesus, but that's good advice. And that's, <laughs> that's what we need to do. And we get paralyzed by making decisions because we imagine the 49,000 things that could go wrong. But let's imagine the one thing that could go right. And if you can just give me three minutes, I'm going to just give you an example of what I mean by this, and then we'll end. If you can go to the picture of that ship. So I try to find what the world's biggest ship is at the moment. There is a whole lot of confusion on Google. Nobody knows. But one of them is apparently the anthem of the seas. It does look like a really big ship, doesn't it? And there's its tonnage and its length for all of you who care about that, but it's a really big ship. I then try to find out how big the rudder of that ship was. Do you know what a rudder is? It's what steers the ship. Hey, I, I couldn't find it, but what we can know for sure is the rudder of that ship is way smaller than the ship. Am I right? But now look at that ship. She's churning happily through the Atlantic Ocean without a care in the world, and she knows when the time comes, that rudder will move her just as she needs to go. Am I right? But she's moving. When that ship is tied to the wharf, when that ship is tied to a pier, the engineers can do what they like with that rudder. Nothing is going to happen. It's probably not even going to feel it. The party will still be going on. But the second that ship starts moving, she can be directed. And this is the end of that decision-making process. Make your plans, get off your chair, and go for it. 
then God can suddenly direct you. I want to promise you this. In 30 years of being a Christian, a fax, that's how old I am, has never arrived in my, in my office saying, this is what you should do next. I have never had an angel appear to me and say, now do this. There's never been a letter, an email, a WhatsApp from heaven telling me what to do. I've had to figure it out every single step of the way, and God is no respecter of person, so guess what? You're going to do it the same way. It's irritating, it's frustrating, it makes us want to throw ourselves on the floor and throw a tantrum. We do a lot. But the point is, is that what I've learned is when I make a choice and go for it, God immediately comes behind me and starts showing me the way I should go. And so the summary of making decisions is this. Know your heart. Look at your neighbor and say, know your heart. (laughs) Now look at yourself and say, there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know about me. You don't know what your default values are. But all of you are sitting with consequences in your life that are proving what Marsha and I have told you. You have a value system that is out of sync with God's. And so there's conflict and there's strife and there's habitual sin. Go to God and figure that out. Secondly, make a plan and start acting on it. But then stay close enough to God so that He can direct your path. Amen. God bless you.